Today we're going to talk about authority. In Luke chapter 20, there are people who question Jesus' authority. I've even heard somebody question Jesus' authority this very morning in the church. Well, what is authority? Um, I could have woke up on Saturday morning and said what I really did say. The Browns are going to win today. I guarantee it. I even sent out a bunch of bold text messages about it. However, I did not have the authority to make that call. And the Browns did not win, in case you didn't hear. What is authority? I, I live next to a parking lot. It's not my property. However, the, uh, the organization that owns the parking lot has asked Julia and I to keep an eye on it. So if anything goofy's happening in the parking lot, I need to address it. And as it is, there'll be times, especially in the summer, when kids will be playing basketball out there, and somebody will roll in to do some type of illegal transaction. And I will need to step out and simply say, hey, I'm in charge of this parking lot, and you got to go. And do I have the authority to say that? And as much as it's been granted to me, I do have the authority to say that. But what if they said, uh, no, what do you think I'm going to say now? Well, maybe I'll say, hey, if you don't leave, I'm going to call the authorities. Bring it up to the next level. I'm going to call a higher power in to deal with the situation. Now, the way I'm talking about authority there, it seems kind of negative. But authority can be used in a positive way. For example, think about a teacher in a school. And the teacher has authority over the students, right? And the teacher uses their authority to train students, to train them maybe to stop a bad habit or to train them to love what is true and good. As you go through life, you're going to have different levels of authority. You'll meet people that have different levels of authority. Your job might give you authority. I've met people that felt like their money gave them authority. In parts of the world, in different times in history, and even today, some people feel like the color of their skin gives them authority. You might also look at a a parent and say, oh, does the parent have authority over the child? Yeah. So when we talk about authority, we're talking about not only jurisdiction, but something that's conferred power. And Jesus is teaching in an authoritative way. He's doing miracles. He's forgiving sins. And so people are wondering, Jesus, by what authority are you doing these things? Are you just a free ranger just kind of doing your own thing? By what authority are you doing these things? That's what Jesus will be asked today. So let's go to Luke chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. It says there that one day, as he, Jesus, was teaching the people in the temple. Wait, he was in the temple teaching? He was proclaiming the good news. And the chief priests, the scribes, with the elders, they came and they said to him, tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Who is it 
who gave you this authority? Tell us by what authority are you doing these things? Let's notice first the people who are asking Jesus the question. Did you see who that was? It says right there, chief priests, scribes, and elders. And these are people with a lot of authority in their community. We're talking about Sadducees, Pharisees, Herodians. They, for different reasons, have a sense of authority. Some of the people in this group, because they were born into the family of Levi, have a sense of authority. Some of the people in this group, the Pharisees, who are merchants and in the wealthier class, feel like their money and their class give them authority. And some of them, of course, as great religious keepers of the law, felt like their religion and their intelligence gave them authority. But what gives Jesus authority? It's a really important question. And we should just pause right now, like to think in our own minds. What gives Jesus the authority? Because our our whole faith rests on this cornerstone. Let me ask you this question. In In this book, in the book of Luke, what sort of things does Jesus do that require authority? They're not just things that we could do. They're things that only someone with authority can do. What sort of things? He made the blind man see. That's authority over what? Okay, over that's true. Over eyesight, over the natural world. And you might even say that's authority over the curse. He could reverse the curse of sin. What other kind of things is Jesus doing in Luke that require authority? There it is. Uh, He said, in case you didn't hear, he brought Lazarus back to life. That's power over death. He could say to the grave, not yet. Or he could say in his resurrection, death is defeated. That's authority. Now, one of the things that Jesus is doing that I'm sure these religious leaders didn't like was he was forgiving sins. It's hard to argue with somebody who's healing the blind or raising the dead. Like, he did it. It's amazing. But forgiving sins, that's something that only God can do. Can you imagine if a human walked around and pretended to do something that only God could do? That's blasphemy. That's exactly why these leaders wanted to have Jesus killed. He was encroaching on their authority, right? So Jesus is teaching with authority. Does he have the authority to do that? Let's look at Jesus' answer. Verse 3. This is Luke 20, verse 3. I will also ask you a question, Jesus says. Tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or of human origin? Was the baptism of John from heaven or human origin? Now, who was John? We call him John the Baptist. He was Jesus' cousin. And what was his uh, job title, if you will? What was his role in God's kingdom? He was, yes. He was a prophet. In fact, scriptures identified uh, John as the greatest prophet. 
Now, I'm not aware of John doing uh, powerful miracles, but one of the things that John did do, uh, that he's famous for, and that's why it's in his name, uh, he baptized people. And this baptism was not a baptism that saved people or even forgave sins, but it was a baptism of repentance. Basically, John came as a messenger. He said, make way the, sh- the path of the Lord. He's coming, and now be baptized so that you would be going God's way, so that you would be ready to receive the Messiah, the Lamb of God. And so people would come to John because they wanted to turn away from their own thing, and they wanted to be uh, right with God and be ready for the Messiah to come. It was a baptism of repentance. Now, the people in the area loved John. He was really a man of God. He was unlike anything they had ever seen in this generation. But I'll tell you who did not like John. It was the scribes and the teachers of the law and the elders, they did not like John. In fact, in Matthew chapter 3, John calls them a lot of names, and he embarrasses them. He says, you guys are like a a group of snakes. You guys are like fakers, really, is what he's saying. You, You think that you're religious, but you're really just all for yourself. And so John calls them out. People did not like John in the government. In fact, Herod chopped off John's head. It's a rough ending. So now think about this guy, John the Baptist. He baptized people. He, he claimed to be a prophet from God. He, he prepared the way of the Lord. Yet he was hated by the religious leaders, and he got his head chopped off by the government. Jesus says to the guys here, so tell me, John, did his authority come from heaven, from God, or was he just doing his own thing? And now they have to answer the question. It's a problem. It's a problem because both answers are bad for them. Let's look at the next verse. Both answers are bad. They said this among themselves. They discussed. If we say from heaven, then Jesus is going to say, well, why didn't you believe John? because they didn't believe John. If John was right about Jesus, then Jesus does have authority. But if we say, oh, no, John was just from human origin, all the people will stone us because they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered, they did not know its origin. This is like uh, a checkmate in chess. Jesus asked them a question, and because of their wrong motives and because of how uh, their minds are not even cohesive about the kingdom of God, they can't say whether John was legit or not. They're afraid of the people, and ultimately Jesus' question shows where their heart really was. Did they really want to know the authority of Jesus? We know from later in the chapter, Luke 20, 20, that the reason they asked the question was to find a reason to have him killed. He was messing with their popularity. And it says right there in Luke 20, 20, the reason they asked him the questions, they hoped maybe if he tripped up, then they could, you know, they could get him 
maybe on blasphemy or going against the government. Ultimately, we know that's what they try to do. Look at what Jesus says here, verse 8. So neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. It's interesting. They are saying, we can't tell you about John's authority. He said, well, then I can't tell you about my authority. Now, if Jesus left it there, that's a little bit confusing. However, Jesus is going to follow up with a story, and that's what we're going to read now is the story. Jesus is going to give them an example of authority, and he's going to use that story. But to the people that ask the question, this applies to us too. Jesus it refused to give more light and more truth to these religious leaders because they refused to accept what God had already given them. In other words, they already rejected Jesus, so he, he couldn't open their eyes further or he wouldn't do it, and they weren't willing to see it. And you'll see now, if they heard this story, they would see themselves for who they really were. Check out this story, and let's see what Jesus is really saying here. It's called the parable of the vineyard owner. How many people have heard this one? Parable of the vineyard owner. Again, this is not just a random story. Jesus is using this story to make a point to these guys who just asked him where his authority came from. Look at verse 9. Luke 20, verse 9. Now Jesus began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and leased it to tenant farmers and went away for a long time. Now for the people hearing this story, they would have been very familiar with a vineyard. But what grows in a vineyard? So we're on the same page here. Grapes grow in the vineyard. And the grapes continue to grow as long as the vineyard is tended. And somebody, of course, has to pick the grapes and, and maybe they use them in some way so that they are uh, preserved. And so the vineyard owner, knowing that he has to leave, puts somebody else in charge of this vineyard. It would be no different than if you owned a pizza shop across the street here. And you got it up and running. You, you bought the oven. You bought all the ingredients. You leased the space. You got the chairs, the tables, the menu, the website. It's all up and running, but you have to leave for whatever reason. We don't know why. Perhaps you have a, a sick family member in another state. You have to go. Now, when you leave the state of Ohio, do you still own the pizza place that you bought? You absolutely do. But you would be foolish to just leave it empty. You need to have somebody in charge that can run the pizza shop. Now, if I owned the pizza shop and I put Matt in charge of it, does Matt own the pizza shop? No, I'm paying him to take care of the pizza shop, but it's my investment. It's my pizza shop. But Matt, I'm willing to partner with you. And, of course, you'll get a fair paycheck. Let's see what happens in the story now. Jesus sets up a scenario of a vineyard owner who's gone away, and it uses the word tenant there to describe somebody who's in charge temporarily. They're leasing the place. 
Look at what it says here. We're in verse 10. At harvest time, he sent servants to the farmers so that they might give him some fruit from the vineyard. Right? It's just a very, it is, if we used our pizza example, we'd be saying, hey, uh, I'm sending somebody over to pick up some pizza. It's, you know, it's my pizza shop, so this is very reasonable. But notice how the tenants respond to this servant sent from the owner. The farmers beat him, and they sent him away empty-handed. This is shocking. Verse 11. So he, being the owner, sent another servant. Guess what? They beat him too. They treated him shamefully, and they sent him away empty-handed. So now they're getting even more vindictive. And at the heart of this, they don't respect the owner's authority. They're saying to the owner, well, you're not here, so we do what we want. Exactly. Verse 12, they sent a third but they wounded this one too and threw him out. Notice how it keeps escalating. The first servant, they sent away empty-handed. The second servant, what does it say? They treated him shamefully, and they sent him away, and they beat him. You're right. The third one there is wounded. And you can imagine these servants coming back to the owner of the vineyard. Hey, we went, and all I have to show for it is a black eye and a few missing teeth, you know, it's something's not going good on the vineyard. Notice here, the vineyard owner, he wants to partner with the tenants. That's, that's the main point I'm seeing here. The vineyard owner wants to partner with the tenants, but the tenants are rejecting his authority. And, and this scenario, it's hard for them to partner together if the tenants are now pretending like they own the place. And the servants, they're not the owner, but they do have the authority uh, of speaking for the owner. The owner sent them, and so now they represent him and look at how they're treated. So this is so unjust. Jesus is setting up a dilemma now. And you should be saying in your mind, what's going to happen? Verse 13. So then the owner of the vineyard said, what should I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. Are you starting to see any parallels here? It reminds me of John 3.16, right? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, it says. And here's a parallel. The, the owner saying, hey, I sent all those servants. They didn't respect the servants, but if I send my own son, he's my representative. He represents me. So surely, if they have any respect for me at all, they're going to respect my son. Verse 14 when the tenant farmers saw him, that's the son, they, when they saw him, they discussed it among themselves. Man, it's just like the scribes and the Pharisees discussed it among themselves, right? And they said this, well, this is the heir. What's an heir? In this, in this spelling of the word heir, we're talking about the next in line. 
So that maybe if you fast forwarded 30, 40 years and the owner, he's passed away. Now the son would be in charge. He would have the right to his father's vineyard. But here's what they said. This is the heir. Let's kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. And the hope here is take out the son. Owner's gone. We own it now. Like we own this place. So they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. And it's a horrible ending, right? Now Jesus, again, he set up a dilemma because he's, he's a master of, of telling these parables, right? And he says, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? What do you think? Do you think you'll fire them all? I, not only do I think that this dilemma is shocking. I think that the answer is shocking also. What should the owner do to them? Well, let's look at verse 16. Should the owner give him a break? Verse 16, he will come. The owner will come himself and kill those farmers and give the vineyard to others. He will come and kill those farmers and give the vineyard to others. Now, when they heard this, they said, this must never happen. It would, again, this would be like if somebody said, uh, you know, the Browns are going to get eliminated in the first round. I would say, this must never happen. Now, what was the objection here? What were they mad about? The, the vineyard uh, tenants being killed or... The vineyard given a, been, being given away to others. Did they, they thought that was being unjust. I wonder if they could see themselves in the story. I wonder if they could see that Jesus was saying that the religious leaders, like the scribes and the Pharisees, they're like the tenants who rejected the son. And it's it's wild to think they rejected the son and the, now the vineyard owner is going to give the vineyard to others. Look at, look at verse 17. We're going to bring it all together now. So Jesus looked at them. He said, this, then what is the meaning of this scripture? So Jesus is saying, you know, if you have a problem with this scenario, why don't you check the Bible? And he's talking about the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, in the writings of Isaiah, it says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will shatter him. And this is the last verse we'll look at today. The scribes and the chief priests looked for a way to get their hands on him that very hour because they knew he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people. They didn't even fear Jesus. They feared the people. Jesus quotes this ancient passage from Isaiah. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. I have a picture of a cornerstone in here. You may have seen this before, especially on these older buildings downtown made of limestone or sandstone. There's a big stone in the corner. And the cornerstone is the first stone laid in the construction of a building. The integrity of the whole building depends on this foundation. 
If you've played Jenga before, you know if you pulled that important piece out over time, the whole building would collapse. And Jesus is creating a situation. He's saying, suppose that we were all builders and uh, we were making a building like this. And we were looking at the stones used for construction. And we said, yep, we're going to use that one, that one. Bring it in, bring it in. But hold on, hold on. What's this stone right? Mm-mm, not this one. Get, get this stone out of here. We're not using this stone. And Jesus is saying, the stone that you chose not to use, it's actually the main stone in the house that God is building. So the one you said, oh, we don't mm, get that one out of here. That's actually God's building a house. We call it the church. He's putting that stone down, and it's going to hold the whole building up. And to be very direct with it, Jesus is saying, you rejected me. You rejected Jesus. And either, when it comes to the authority of Jesus, either you're going to be depending on the authority of Jesus, he'll be the cornerstone of your life, or you're going to be crushed by the authority of Jesus, is what he's explaining here. This is a foreshadowing. This whole parable is a foreshadowing of when Jesus is going to be rejected. He's going to be rejected as the cornerstone. He's going to be rejected as the son of the vineyard owner. He's rejected. But then Jesus, who rises from the grave, gives the vineyard to others. He becomes the foundation for others, people like us. And that should make us say, wow, praise God. Remember, God had chosen Abraham and Abraham's family, who we call Israel or the Jews. He had chosen them. He'd given them the law. He had entrusted them with promises. And over time, he had sent prophets to come and say, hey, return to God. Turn to God. And every prophet, according to Stephen, they beat him. They turned him away. They treated him shamefully. They killed him. And so God said, now I will send my beloved son. And because Jesus died and because he rose from the dead, validating, proving that he has authority over the grave, he can give the vineyard to others. In other words, he can partner with tenants outside of the family of Abraham. And that's a lot of us in the room right here. Now, it would be easy to end a message on the authority of Jesus and pretty much say, see, Jesus is the authority because he's the creator, because he's the living, risen Savior. But let's, let's drill a little bit deeper in this. How does the authority of Jesus impact my life? There are definitely a lot of people in this country that claim to be Christians, and they love the sacrifice of Jesus, and they love the gentleness of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus, but they may not actually submit to the authority of Jesus. So I believe that it is part of our identity as Christians. Like, this is necessary. Can you actually say Jesus is my authority? He's responsible for me, and I'm responsible to him. That's why it says in Romans 10, 
confessing Jesus as Lord. He's the boss of our lives. Just in a way of application, let's reflect on this. Jesus uses his authority to partner with the faithful. Like the tenants in the story, they didn't want to partner with the vineyard owner, but Jesus, that's amazing. He doesn't use his authority just to crush people, right? He uses his authority to partner with people. And if we respond to his authority and we say, yes, Jesus, you are the Savior and Lord of my life, he wants to partner with us. He wants to tend the vineyard in our lives, so to speak. But now let's, let's take it a little bit further now. The promises and gospel work of Jesus are still authoritative today. Remember, I referenced somebody that was here earlier, and then they, they said, uh, in a way, and, and very directly in a way, they, they said that one of the promises of Jesus is not true, and it's never going to happen. And I want to th- appeal this to you today. If Jesus was the authority in 30 A.D. and 33 A.D., then he's still the authority today. And the things that he promised, the things that he did, like dying on the cross and rising from the dead, those are still authoritative today. You might know somebody who is being beat up by their uh, lack of hope, lack of purpose. They may even be uh, stuck deep in sin and you can speak to them about the promises and work of Jesus that are still authoritative today. I can't come up here and tell you something that I came up with that's going to help somebody. But if I tell you what Jesus said and what Jesus did, that is actually with power and authority. And that brings us to the final, final point here. Is that if we've trusted Jesus as our Savior... Is he just like fire insurance or is he actually authority? Is he our savior and the boss of our lives? So I'll ask this question as we close. Because I trust him as savior, Jesus has authority over my, and you can fill in the blank. Because I trust him as savior, Jesus has authority over my, you could say uh, finances here. And if Jesus is the boss of my finances, then I should be less selfish and more generous, right? Because it's not even mine, right? I was in the store the other day, and uh, it wasn't a store I usually go to. In fact, I was complaining in the aisle that, oh, we're going to spend more money here than we normally do. There was a guy who walked up to us in the store, and he handed me a $20 bill, and he said, hey, this is to celebrate your new baby, because I had the baby with me. And he left. And I don't tell you that story to tell you that God's just going to give you a bunch of money and (laughs) all that. I do tell you that story to say that that was really generous. That was somebody using their money in a selfless kind of way. Because he certainly could have said, man, I got an extra 20 right here in my pocket. Let me use it for for me. I can think of a lot of ways to use it for me. Fill in the blank here. Let, let God's Spirit speak to you as to how this would apply. If, if I trust Jesus to save me, then he has the authority over my, here's one I put in here, is future. If I trust Jesus as Savior, he has authority over my future. That was We sang that earlier. Um, 
All of my future belongs to you. That was what we sang. I, I know of somebody that's as a terminal stage of cancer. And uh, I just think about how, how different his perspective is because Jesus has authority over his future. Basically, I'm saying that when he dies, it's not going to be that he's working against the authority of Jesus. I'm saying that the authority of Jesus will be working for him. Jesus will be speaking, interceding for him. And because of Jesus, he'll be accepted by God. Because I trust him as Savior, Jesus has authority over my, you could put relationship or marriage. There's probably people in this room that are not married that want to be. Who knows, there's probably people that are married that don't want to be married. So now you have to say, well, if Jesus is the authority over my marriage, that, that changes it. Now suddenly, I'm not just thinking, what's my appetite? What do I want? Now we're thinking, what does God want? I wrote a prayer for us. And uh, this, just the spirit of this prayer here is, if Jesus has the authority... If Jesus has the authority, then we, we're not trying to reject his authority, but now we depend on his authority. Because I trust him as Savior, Jesus has authority over my mind and my body and my worship. So let me pray that prayer over you guys. I'm praying this for myself also as we close. This is the prayer. Because I trust you as Savior, God, may you have authority over my mind, my body, my worship. You have authority because you're the creator. You have authority over every power in this world, seen and unseen. You live the perfect life. You have authority over sin. You chose to lay down your life, and then you rose from the dead. You have authority over death. So after proving it in your resurrection, you declare that you have all authority. As you sent Jesus into the world, send us to speak of and demonstrate your mercy and authority, not our own, so that you might partner with others. God, you are our cornerstone, our only hope in life and in death. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.